0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: This is Michael Berry, and welcome to our podcast. This commercial-free audio is made possible by Top Tax Defenders, great folks who also sponsor and support our show. If you need help with the IRS, start at toptaxdefenders.com.
0: It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Berry Show is on
3: the air. Well,
2: so we had two major hearings today one over Trump's Supreme Court nominee, one, James Comey, a name that everyone knows after the past year. Before Congress, we have a lot of things to get to. But before we do that, Chuck Berry passed over the weekend. How do we put Chuck Berry's life into perspective? Well, I'll do it like this. I got an email early afternoon from none other than Ted Nugent, the Motor City Madman. And Uncle Ted said, Chuck Berry has died. This is a momentous occasion. And I said, will you come on the air and talk to us about it? And he said, I'd be delighted. And so in honor of Chuck Berry, Ted Nugent is our guest. Uncle Ted, how are you, sir?
4: And a great happy springtime to you, Michael. Thanks for having me on to talk about the great man.
2: Why is Chuck Berry so important?
4: Well, for those that might not understand, let me clarify for them, because I was born in the uh, whirlwind of all things Chuck Berry. Les Paul had just electrified the guitar in '45, I think it was, 1945. And I was born in 1948, and within months Chuck Berry showed us all exactly what to do with it. The guy was beyond pioneer, beyond genius, beyond visionary, because he did things with this brand-new electric guitar, that had never been done before, and that nobody else was doing. He brought a lyricism and a uh, a cadence that, that accompanied his incredible vocal and, and lyric songwriting talent to feature the electric guitar for the first time in its proper place, might I add. And so I am, I'm here to tell you that every piece of music, I don't care what genre you prefer, There is no music that has not been imprinted by Chuck Berry with his brilliant songwriting, lyricism, his adventurous and, dare I say, risque um, themes of his uh, compositions. But instrumentally, he's done things and taught us things on the guitar that could not have been done on the keyboards or the saxophone or any other featured instrument of the day. And to this day, all these years later, it's... 2017, I'm about to go on tour again this year, Make America Rock Again 2017, and I promise you, every song we play and every song that the best bands in the world play are deeply and obviously touched by Chuck Berry's vision. He was a great, great man.
2: So many questions running through my mind. I don't know if, if the name Chuck Kosterman means anything to you. He used to write for a Rolling Stone magazine, and he writes these sort of opinion pop culture pieces. And he wrote a book called What If We're Wrong? And he devoted a chapter to how history will look at our era and what this era, uh, the last 50 years, will how it will be remembered. And all these things that seem so important today will be forgotten by them. But he said that uh, – he, he made the argument that there will be three people that will define the music of this era, and it may not be the three you'd most think of at first. And he went through why, and that was Elvis, Bob Dylan, and Chuck Berry. Hallelujah. And I, all he's got uh, – Charlie Daniels tweeted uh, yesterday that the all-time greatest rock and roller has died. Why? Explain to me why Chuck Berry is so important.
4: Well, there's actually I was sent a YouTube performance by Charlie Daniels and myself at one of his uh, charity volunteer jams where we performed Chuck's incredible song "Carol," and uh, I've recorded "Johnny Be Good." In fact, a lot of people wonder why I'm like I am, Michael—a <laughs> little, little over the top, effervescent, uppity, and over spirited. I played bass guitar, Michael, for Chuck Berry. I was on stage. With the master in 1969, playing bass guitar to Maybelline, Carol, Johnny B. Good, Sweet 16, School Days. I've been in bands since 1955, and I have never met, and I'm a gregarious guy. I run around a lot. I tour, I'm about to do my 7,000th concert in the summer of 2017, so I've been around the block a few times. In fact, I, I built the damn block. Every musician, every guitar player, when Chuck died, had a spark ignite inside them reminding all of us that every time we touch the guitar or drums or bass or keyboards and we get a groove going, we get our favorite song going, there is a Chuck Berryism within those songs. I don't care if you're talking Chili Peppers or Bruno Mars or even some of these uh, pop country guys. You watch those guitar players, and they all got that variation of that honky-tonk that was the rhythm cadence to every Chuck Berry song, every Rolling Stone, the Who, the Kinks, the Beatles, the Dave Clark Five, the rhythm the guitars for James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, everything Motown. I'm telling you, Chuck Berry's signature, Michael, is on everything, and he invented it. Nobody made music like this before Chuck Berry. Now, I know all about Fats Domino and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. I'm well aware of that, but nobody took that electric guitar as the propellant for each composition and Chuck taught us that and every time I I was at a music store in Waco yesterday on Sunday and I was with some buddies of mine and I was playing some guitars cuz I'm getting ready to go on tour and I I'm, I'm out of my mind right now with excitement and anticipation and I played a bunch of Chuck Berry songs I didn't know he had passed I was in this little music store Lone Star Music and when I left I got the text and we had just spent an hour celebrating Chuck Berry when I got the text that he had passed. He's, he's with me every day because I play my guitar every day, and I'm not alone. I don't care if it's Billy Gibbons or, or Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick or Joe Perry or Brad Woodford from Aerosmith. I don't care who you are as a guitar player. Your hands will grab the neck of the guitar, and your impetus is Chuck Berry,
2: period. Ted Nugent is our guest discussing the passing of Chuck Berry. I give you one song of Chuck Berry's that you can play because you love and one only. What is it? Johnny Be Good. Why?
4: And I played I've played it thousands of times and I'll probably play it every night this summer. The cadence, the rhythm, the spirit, the uppiness, the the positive high energy. I mean, just think, we're down in Louisiana across New Orleans. We're or back up in the woods among the evergreen. There stood a long cabin made of earth and wood. We lived a country boy named Johnny P. Good. He never ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play the guitar just like a ring in the bell. You go, that and do that. Are you kidding me? Those are sentences that would stand on their own in a book, in a conversation, but he created them to go with a rhythm and a groove that was... It, it, it was unprecedented. It says, it says everything about not just rock and roll, but music, lyrics, creativity, songwriting, um, musicality. I'm, I, I, I can I'm pretty good with the English language, but I fail miserably to come up with adequate terms to describe the influence and imprint that Chuck Berry had on all.
2: Uncle Ted, can you hold with us for another segment? My pleasure. All right, Ted Nugent's our guest. Hold on. Yes, I just put that on the Michael Berry Show.
5: (laughs) Michael Berry Show.
2: Ted Nugent playing Johnny B. Good on his Facebook page yesterday. I encourage you to go there we 'll post a link on our website as well so you can get over to his Facebook page and hear it uh, first of all, uh, Uncle Ted, when you get the news that Chuck Berry has passed to put this into perspective, um, who else who else is passing is of that gravity? I mean we, we lose great musicians. there are a number of great we 're lucky we have a lot of great musicians. Who else is in that category? Put that in, in category for me.
4: Well, certainly the passing of my great bow hunting hero, Fred Baer, um, hit me very hard. Uh, Fred got 84 years out of the deal, but Chuck making it to 90 years, um, I really got a Cheshire grin on my face when I got the text um, because he put in his time, he left his mark. My understanding is that he had a quality of life up till the end. And I was pleased that we were blessed with his presence and his vision and his statement and his musical nourishment. Uh, But I I, I was more angry when I lost some of my other heroes. When Jimmy and Janice and Jim Morrison and Keith Moon and Bon Scott and so many of the other greats died, I was angry because they didn't need to. Um, They killed themselves by whatever the motivation is to be hip or to be uh, a sheep to pressure or it, it may be a weakness to go that suicidal route with substance abuse. But uh, because I knew those people and I saw their genius and I, my, my life was so enriched by their genius, I was I was angry when they passed. Um, but when when Chuck passed it was it was time and uh, it was all good. Uh, sure, we all have roller coaster rides and chuck certainly had his adventures but overall uh chuck's legacy is one of overwhelming positiveness and so i cherish those memories i being able to play bass guitar for him like i did in 1969 and performing his songs for so many years it's been with me my entire life so it's it's quite an imprint it's equal to the imprint of my parents i believe michael wow wow
2: you know uh You were on the show maybe six months ago, and we talked about your influences, and you talked about the the fact that your major influences early in life were black artists, and and because of the sort of Mississippi Delta experience and and their lives, and there was something that you took from that, Um, why do you think Chuck Berry was so special? What about his upbringing, his life, his perspective do you think made him that unique person?
4: Well, we can all watch that great documentary that Keith Richards produced, uh, paying tribute to Chuck, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, and you can see the yin and the yang and the good and the bad and the ugly. (laughs) And It is rather entertaining, but it was also very insightful into what made the man tick. And I think uh, the most important observation I can make as a 68-year-old man is that when I was born and this music was first erupting, in the nineteen late nineteen forties and early fifties, um, our society, thank God, was getting over the the curse and the scourge and crime of racism, segregation, and that blacks were being welcomed um, away from the horrors of slavery and and the 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 injustices of the past. And I believe that Chuck and Bo and Little Richard and and certainly the Angst in the Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Mos Allison uh, music was was representative of the the pain and suffering of the injustices heaped upon our, our black brothers. But Chuck celebrated that we were over racism. We were, and we really were, except for a few lunatic fringe pockets. We were certainly past slavery. And we were breaking out of the shackles of segregation. So that played, I'm convinced, Michael, an enormous role in the positive, uppity spirit and attitude and defiance and and unbridled independence of a guy like Chuck Berry to take this music and sing those lyrics and create this universally embraced music. And I think my instinct as a young boy who wasn't aware of any racism, I, I was too young and stupid, and I, wasn't, I had never heard of slavery when I was seven, eight years old and influenced by this new music. So the, the immediate, honest, and real knee-jerk, proper, uh, 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 accurate knee-jerk reaction to love this kind of music was as instinctual as anything we will ever do in life, the way he throttled that guitar and the upbeat rhythms of it and the cadence of his lyrics, it was universally understood to be a celebration of an individual, independent man's musical vision, and it touched all of us. And to this day, um, we we. Especially now after the Obama administration, where he rekindled the flames of racism and he separated our races in a in a terrible, terrible eight year run it was It was gone for all practical purposes ten years ago, as far as I'm concerned. I never met a segregationist. I never met a person that judged anybody by the color of their skin but always by the content of their character. So with Chuck's passing in 2017, I would like to think that we should embrace that defiance of man's worst curses and scourges and crimes and celebrate that a black a young black man had the wherewithal, the tenacity, the vision and the courage. To make that kind of music in those days,
2: Chuck Berry, Ted Nugent's our guest. Chuck Berry scolds or gets on to Keith Richards a lot in, during that documentary, and and I've heard different stories that he was sometimes a tough guy to get along with. He was he was a, a could be a difficult personality. Is that fair to say?
4: It is fair to say he, and that's because when he was so successful. Um, and i got to tell you, I'd love to sit down with you for a whole radio show one time and expose the demons in this music industry. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if there was a word bastard before the music industry was invented, but we sure have perfected it. There are thieves and ripoffs, scammers and liars and con men. And the stories are legion. And Chuck was a victim of that kind of ripoff to the point where this Positive, buoyant, loving guy became cynical and and jaded mm. suspicious of everybody. And rightfully so, Michael.
2: Ted, how are you on time? I'm good, man. Alright, I'm gonna put you on hold for just a second. I'm gonna tease a story that I want you to respond to when we come back. And and that story Okay,
5: round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry?
1: Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
5: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. Forward, it by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: He is Steve Cropper, great guitarist, as you know. Told me a story that that um, Chuck Berry would. Um, when, because he, he, would, he, he demanded that he be paid in cash and that sometimes he might bump that amount or if a guy had done him wrong in the past, he'd try to recoup that at the beginning of a show. He said they'd have the curtains closed, and what he would do is he would refuse to go out on stage. And so he didn't want the owner of the venue to say Chuck Berry didn't show up, so what he would do is he would peek his head out so the crowd knew he was inside. He would get them chanting, Chuck, chuck chuck put his head back and say i'm not going out until you pay me in cash before the show starts and i heard a similar story with led zeppelin with this big muscle man that they used as kind of their enforcer who carried a pistol at all times and and didn't mind telling but i want to ask you about that story ted nugent is our guest coming up just a moment On the passing of Chuck Berry, we are treated to a uh, discussion of the matter with none other than Ted Nugent, who said Chuck Berry was as influential on his life as Ted Nugent's own parents. So I, I told the story that Cropper told me about uh, uh, how Chuck Berry would make sure that he got paid, and and there was a there was also a I don't know if it was a documentary or I read it about uh, the, the strongman that Led Zeppelin used. And
6: yeah, Peter Grant, their man, Peter Grant, yeah. yes,
2: yes. So uh, uh, was that true about Chuck Berry having trouble getting paid? Did he do that?
4: Sure. It's happened to all of us. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of pistol Peter Grant carried, but I carried a pretty big one back in the 60s. And uh, Now
2: you carry a bow?
4: <laughs> now I carry a crossbow <laughs> and a rocket launcher, yeah. <laughs> I got a shoulder holster for a Laws rocket launcher, Um, but it's actually a Gibson. Uh, Yeah, that's a a notorious condition in our industry. Uh, There are some just mean, rotten, dishonest scallywags that I had to confront with the uh, original Amboy Dukes tour starting in 1965. And uh, there were a couple of times where my brother John and I Um, came real close to having to beat our fee out of a guy. And Chuck was ripped off so many times. Remember, too, back then, um, and, well, forever, is the problem with musicianship. You want to play so bad, you don't really care about anything. You just want to get up there and plug in and play your music. And the energy and the the vitality from the audience is intoxicating. So you just want to play. So the worst person to manage their business is a musician because they're more interested in playing than getting paid, and because Chuck and I and everybody else were so willing to get up there with the handshake and the promise to be paid, and then afterwards the club owner or the concert promoter back in those early days they figured you were worth your $250, which is $250 more than you got anyplace else. Meanwhile, he he made $2,500 that night, and he thought it, the people came because he was a cute promoter instead of the music that drew them there. And so we had to get a, uh, let's, let's put it this way, we would improvise, adapt, and overcome on many occasions.
2: Ted Nugent is our guest. You mentioned the racial aspect. And, you know, when we think about a guy like Jackie Robinson, you think of him breaking a color barrier. I wasn't around in 55 when Maybelline came out. But to use a term that was misused for the last eight years, Chuck Berry's always seemed sort of post-racial. Was that true in 55? Was he seen as a black artist then? I mean, obviously he was black. But it just never seemed that he was a guy that was caught up in race.
4: You know, that era was a wonderful era, Michael, and I was there. I was already performing. I did my first concert in Detroit in 1958 at the uh, fairgrounds. I played boogie-woogie and honky-tonk. <laughs> and uh, that era was so welcoming to the end of the segregation and the, and the end of slavery and the end of racism. And it really was the end, I'm telling you. I, I I I was born in Detroit and I never saw any racism. I I'd never heard of segregation and nobody ever taught me about slavery. We didn't even know why there was segregation or why there was racism. But I'll but I'll tell you that Chuck Berry's music was so above that. It was so universally embraced and you gotta really be honest and listen back. There was not really that overt Howling wolf, muddy waters, bluesy, down and dirty, getting down a how, how, how. Got the wang, dang, doodle. There wasn't that real overt. Which, by the way, that's the greatest stuff in the world. We all, we all do everything in our power to emulate that soulful authority. But Chuck had a an upper uh, a cadence that didn't have any color to it. I remember when Mitch Ryder first came out, everybody thought he was a black singer. But when Chuck's music first came out, until they saw a picture, they didn't know it was a black singer, because he had such a clear articulation in the movie, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Watch Chuck talk. He could be the ultimate role model for black children today, because there was no Ebonics. There was such a... a, a
2: Our guest, you've said if you don't know every Chuck Berry lick, you can't play rock guitar. Finger. What's the single best lick? You said Johnny B. Good's the best song. What's the single best lick?
4: Well, I think the Johnny B. Good uh, intro. I mean, everybody, your your fingers just when you grab a guitar, even you have the, when you don't have the faintest idea how to play it. If somebody just hands you a guitar, and you've never touched one before, and that's how I was when I was seven years old. Your your finger, your left hand. Grabs those two top E and B strings on that neck, and you'll find a fret.
2: one more you bet i won't i won't keep you beyond that i promise i'm going to ask you the question is chuck berry the last of his breed are there more chuck berries out there and if so who are they where are they ted nugent coming up next
1: the michael berry show
2: With the passing of Chuck Berry, Ted Nugent is our guest. Uncle Ted, is there another Chuck Berry, and if so, where?
4: Michael, I want to say yes so bad, but because of the suicidal tendencies of the music industry, and we can go into detail if you wish, the motivation and the sacrifices and the investment And the uh, risks necessary to get in that studio and hone that craft and then release a product that's going to cost you possibly your life savings and your future savings, and then people get to download it for free, it ain't going to happen.
2: Let me ask you this. Uh, you, you know, music, like sports, tends to be a place you can get away from the worries of the world. You don't necessarily have to talk about politics, although culture does bleed in. The, the Chuck Berry era that you came up in, you know, where you were first getting started in 1955, 58, 60, uh, it seemed that the black artists were beginning to become crossovers, and Elvis was borrowing from their style, and you were borrowing from their style. And there was such an amalgam of cultures just jumbling up and having so much fun. And today it seems that we've gone another direction. Uh, just as we each have our own cable channel, we each have our own musical genre, and I no more understand a guy that's grabbing his crotch and standing on TV with a flat-billed cap talking about beating up a woman than some kid in the inner city does You know the, the music of Charlie Pride. It, have, have we separated because of that, because we don't share the same music anymore?
4: I don't think so. Um, I, have a, a wonderful, I have wonderful sons and daughters, and they all like all different kinds of music, including my kind of hardcore traditional rock and roll, including rap and hip-hop. In fact, my son Rocco, Rocco Winchester Nugent, he goes by the stage name of Rocco Moon, and at his website he creates kind of a, a collision course of Motown, John Coltrane, his dad, and, and hip-hop. And it's it's really fascinating, and it, but it has music to it. It's uh, it's got that Motown fluctuation and and soulfulness and grind. But he raps more than he sings. Um, but if you listen to the cadence of Chuck Berry, he had a tonality and a musicality to his his his, his, his vocal cadence that I'd I'd like to think every rap artist would dream of being able to do. But that's a different world altogether that I do not enjoy the rap or the hip-hop, but I I, I still love my traditional rock and roll, and I like adventurous stuff. Like I love Bruno Mars, which I see as a modern James Brown takeoff, and I love the Chili Peppers, which is like pop funk. So there's a lot of great music out there, and I think there will always be a widespread appreciation in every imaginable walk of life and and, 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 uh, demographic that will like all kinds of music. And if I may, on the Michael Berry Show, I'd like to say thank you to all the genuine soul music lovers out there across the nation, because 2016, my my tour was the greatest tour of my life. We're going out all summer this year. Ted Nugent, Make America Rock Again 2017, and people still love the real McCoy. Thank God, huh? Well,
2: I th- I think the music is timeless, but, you know, when we hang up, I'll get 100 emails or more from folks who will say thanks for having you on because they love the passion. The passion is infectious. And, you know, one of the things about Chuck Berry is I don't ever get to sense any video I've seen of him on stage across the decades – is excitement and energy and entertainment. It's it, It's as if he understands what he's doing. He's taking us away from the worries of the world and, and making us feel something special. And you can't help but feel it.
4: It's the soundtrack to escapism um, without losing your mind. <laughs> you, can, you can go crazy. I mean, I, if I'm not the perfect example of that, because I've been clean and sober for 68 years, and people swear to God that I was on some strange chemical warfare routine, because of my uninhibitedness, shall we say. Um, but yes, music is the great cleanser. As I've always articulated, and thank you for allowing me to do so on your radio show, that the outdoor lifestyle that I've embraced all my life is a soul cleanser. Nature is healer. So is music. There is not a, 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 a human experience or emotion that isn't soothed or ignited. some type of music, and we all had that soundtrack, and all I can tell you, Michael Berry, is that every time you listen to your favorite song, everybody out there in America, Chuck Berry was there. He influenced everybody.
2: He influenced everybody, and when we talk about who influenced him, Muddy Waters, of course, introduced him to Leonard Chess and Chess Records, and how he took off from that. And one of the things when you when you you do your research is is uh, T Bone Walker comes up. But but what do you see as the major influences in Chuck Berry's life to to yield what we saw?
4: Uh, you know, he he was raised in a in, in a you know a, a, a middle income family in St Louis. His mother and father were both professionals, and I often heard him refer to the discipline. Ah, that I always refer when I speak to you in every interview I've ever done. Discipline, discipline, discipline. You can hear that discipline even in the outrageous dissonance and, and flamboyance of his guitar torturing. I mean, it really was a noisy, wonderful electric guitar sound and style that he created so that as outrageous as it sounded it was only capable because of discipline and you listen to the way Chuck talked. you listen to how he conducted himself and how he worked with his musicians
2: Book. I wish instead of using the F word, he would have used the word care, because I think it would broaden the audience. But a guy named Mark Manson wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, Uh, and he talks about when he talks about instead of our passion. He says, if you want to know what you're going to be good at, you ask the question, "What are you willing to suffer for?" He said, "I wanted to be a rock musician." But what I wasn't willing to do was have my fingers bleed for hours on end and to travel and to play gigs where nobody showed up and to work at it. And so, you know, everything we talk about, I got a minute before break. Everything we talk about with you is whether it's business, whether it's hunting, whether it's cooking, whether it's being a parent, whether it's being a husband, a musician, touring. Uh, speaking out on politics is what are you willing to suffer for? What are you willing to undergo pain? Because that's your muse. That's the thing you stand for. Uncle Ted, as always, a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being with us.
4: Michael, thank you for letting us pay tribute to a great, great legendary American. God bless Chuck Berry and God bless America.
2: We would not have been able to pay tribute properly, but I feel that you have. Ted Nugent, our guest, as always. Thanks. All right. There you have it. So uh, we got a lot to get to today. I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I do. A uh, welcome treat that we didn't expect. We'll get to the Gorsuch hearings today. Uh, We'll get to Comey coming before Congress. Sheila Jackson Lee was asked what she thought about Gorsuch, and she said, I don't eat
5: Russian soup. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring
3: laundry oh a book club
1: computer solitaire huh
5: ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no restrictions
1: overplayed by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
0: It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Berry show is on the air.
2: All right, I want to get into what happened earlier today, but I got a message there was a call from Dayton Ohio I will take that call and then we'll get to an update on what happened earlier today uh Wally go ahead sir
6: hey um I just wanted to call today uh I kind of called you a couple of years in a row on May tw- or on March 20th but uh Matt Moffin 9 years ago today uh, was found his remains were found in uh F- or in Iraq he's on the first KIA and uh he's a really good friend of mine and just kind of the way that I pay tribute and don't I have set on my phone every day every year to ring on this day just pour out a little beer for him and uh it's kind of the way that I remember him he was a really good man and he was taken from us way too early
2: tell me a little bit about him
6: Um, he was just he was one of your Johnny redneck good guys I mean he just was somebody he was a little bit older than me and I really looked up to him he was always somebody that was just going to be say hey how are you man how you doing and uh he he wasn't ever too good for anybody and uh when he when they uh when he passed away or he went missing uh for a couple years uh i decided back in 06 i was going to join the army as well and uh when i went into one the army it was in memory of him well when i was in basic training is when they found his remains um and that tore me up because in a training exercise they mentioned him and uh, i had no idea they had found him and um tore me up real bad because I I, I found out through an exercise, not finding out through family and everything. Everybody had already known for two months um, what I didn't know. So um, he's just a great person. He's a great man. He's a true American hero, and he's one of the many that needs to be remembered uh, a lot more than the Kardashians and Beavers in the world.
2: Amen, brother. Wally, thank you for taking the time to share this man's story with us so that we can remember because there are others just like him and families who never forget when we move on and uh, on this day and every other day, friends, family, mother, father, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, um, never stop missing them. So thank you for the call, Wally.
6: No problem. Thank you for having me on. Yep.
2: We'll hear from you next year, if not before. Absolutely. Don't forget.
6: Never, never will.
2: (laughs) All right, buddy. I remember that call he does call every year, and he says exactly that you know we we uh we get so busy doing what we're doing that sometimes we forget um yeah, nice call, glad that call came through um so let's start uh before we get to comey let's let's start with Neil Gorsuch. A lot of people I don't know how many, but I think a lot of people I heard a lot of people say that they voted for Trump. Uh, They may not have liked everything about Trump. They may have been bothered by this or that. We won't rehash the election. It's all public information. But their choice was uh, to use the term binary. It was Clinton or Trump. And a number of people told me that the thing that concerned them most was the fact that we had a Supreme Court justice uh, waiting to be nominated and then to go before the Senate. And that was something that, if it didn't swing the election, it certainly had a huge effect. And Trump didn't disappoint. He came out with a Supreme Court nominee that I think a lot of people felt was certainly much better than anything Hillary Clinton uh, would put up. Before we get into those hearings and the criticism of um, Gorsuch, he will be replacing Uh, Antonin Scalia, my all-time favorite justice. Um, Before we do that, I would like to play for you a clip of Senator Ted Cruz speaking. And what the good senator is going to point out here is that for all of you people telling us how awful Gorsuch is, this man, when he was appointed, uh, when he was nominated for a lower court bench years ago, you sang his praises. He was considered a highly respectable, smart, thoughtful, accomplished jurist. And he's done nothing in the meantime to, uh, to prove to the contrary. But now each of you is playing this role, this game of making him out to be a bad person. Um, Senator Ted Cruz.
0: Like the renowned justice he is set to replace, Judge Gorsuch is brilliant and has an impeccable academic record. His judicial record demonstrates a faithful commitment to the Constitution and the rule of law. He has refused to legislate his own policy preferences from the bench while recognizing the pivotal role the judiciary plays in defending the fundamental liberties protected in the Bill of Rights. On the night he was nominated, Judge Gorsuch channeled Justice Scalia when he explained that quote, a judge who likes every outcome he reaches is very likely a bad judge, stretching for results he prefers rather than those the law demands. That is exactly right. And those words should give comfort to the American people and to my Democratic colleagues. And it's worth recalling that our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle understand this and, indeed, not too long ago, agreed with it. A decade ago, Judge Gorsuch was confirmed by this committee for the Federal Court of Appeals by a voice vote. He was likewise confirmed by the entire United States Senate by a voice vote without a single Democrat speaking a word of opposition. Not a word of opposition from Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Not from Harry Reid or Ted Kennedy or John Kerry, not from Senators Feinstein, Leahy, or Durbin, who still sit on this committee, not even from Senators Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, or Joe Biden. Not a one of them spoke a word against Judge Gorsuch's nomination a decade ago. And the question this hearing poses to our Democratic colleagues is what has changed What has changed 10 years ago, Judge Gorsuch, was so unobjectionable, he didn't merit even a whisper of disapproval. In the decades since, he has had an objectively exemplary record. By any measure, he has shown himself to be even more worthy of the bipartisan support he received back then. Unfortunately, modern reality suggests that's Probably not something my Democratic colleagues feel they can do in today's political environment.
2: The hearings today, pretty much what you'd expect so far, senators staking out their positions. Gorsuch is either the second coming of Antonin Scalia or the second coming of Antonin Scalia from hell. There's a lot of faux butthurt over Merrick Garland not getting a hearing last year. And for any of you wondering, there is precedent when a president of one party does not have control of the Senate, the other party has control of the Senate, in his last year of office, he typically does not get to fill a Supreme Court seat. just doesn't happen. These seats are uh, lifetime—these Supreme Court jurists, Supreme Court justices serve for life. The impact is profound, far beyond— What a president will serve of only four, at most now eight years after the 22nd Amendment. And it's been the case that we give that by tradition, by precedent, to the next president. All right, more on that. And James Comey appearing before Congress earlier today, coming up.
0: The Michael Berry Show.
6: I know you want to hear more, I know you do. to take it out of here, in grand tradition. But you gotta help us. Will you help us? All right. Gonna help us take it out of here with the rock and roll national anthem.
5: All right. Yeah, I feel like getting dirty tonight here.
2: Well, George Thurgood for you. So at the Gorsuch hearing today, a lot of talk about the fact that Merrick Garland would have made a great justice and whatever. Here's a terrible thought. Senators Lee and Hatch have been on the judiciary committee since before Sandra Day O'Connor's hearing in 1981 36 years. You have to go back to 1975 in order to have a Judiciary Committee review a Supreme Court justice that didn't have any members that are currently on the Senate's Judiciary Committee. I'm not a fan of term limits except for the fact that we have them every two years for members of the House and every six years for senators. It's called elections. That's too long for someone to be serving, in my humble opinion. That justice, the last justice to be approved, to be ratified, without a member currently on the Judiciary Committee, John Paul Stevens, 1975. Democrat senators talk today. This this is their chance. You know, most of the time they're in these hearings and nobody listens. So this is their chance to, to speak to the groups that give them money. And so Democrat senators are worried that he's going to cut or, or uh, not cut, gut environmental law and that he's not, he doesn't find in favor of the little guy, enough time, little guy. Senator Kennedy from Louisiana says he wants someone as judge who is a cross between Socrates and Dirty Harry. Okay, all right. The two Colorado senators, Gardner, a Republican, and Bennett, a Democrat, have said very nice things about him. In fact, uh, some Democrats did speak out on his behalf today, they've each referenced the fact that Gorsuch would be the first judge from west of the Mississippi to be nominated since Sandra Day O'Connor and would be the second judge from Colorado after, after who, Ramon? I think he played pro football. Byron White, Whizzer White. Gorsuch actually, by the way, clerked for Whizzer White. Senator Cruz made the point that during the 2000 these are from notes from the hearing during the 2006 confirmation to be on the 10th circuit no one not Biden, Obama or Clinton said anything about Gorsuch and then of course asked that question so what changed? Senator Cruz posits the theory that the Democrat senators on the judiciary committee think they have to be against Gorsuch just because not because of any principle but because he was nominated by a Republican Gorsuch's statement to the senators was that he'd met over 70 senators out of the hundred and that they were all cordial so far. He paid tribute to his friends and family and hundreds of people had all written to the committee in support of his nomination, conservatives, liberals. John Elway, Ramon. John Elway wrote a letter supporting him. I mean, John Elway's for you. That, that We ought to shut her down at that He made a nice reference to Whizzer White, someone he holds in great respect, Um, war hero, Rhodes Scholar, highest paid NFL player of his time. Didn't know that. Said he doesn't believe judges should be politicians in robes. So that's a sort of anti-judicial activism comment that that sits well with the very right-wing Federalist crowd that I consider myself to be part of. He says the robes don't make you any smarter. In fact, on the day, his first day wearing one, he tripped on him, so it didn't make him smarter at all. He says they do remind you to put your ego aside, do your job. He said the rule of law is a wonder, and it's no wonder the U.S. system is the envy of the world. He got high marks across the board, really, with objective people for his opening statement. Tomorrow we'll start at nine thirty. Every senator will have thirty minutes to question him. Every senator on the committee, Senator Grassley, the chair, expects the committee to vote on his nomination next Monday, with a full vote. I'm sorry, with a vote in the full Senate by April third. Um, to put this bluntly, to put this crassly, and to put into perspective how silly that debacle was. I would say that if there's not a pubic hair allegation on a can of Coke, Gorsuch sails through. And I will tell you that the reputation of Clarence Thomas was besmirched when he, too, should have sailed through committee and taken his place on the court, a place that he has uh, occupied and served in with great dignity honor, accomplishment, and, dare I say, wisdom. It was unfortunate what Democrats did to Clarence Thomas. It was unfortunate that Anita Hill, in my opinion, all I can offer, and I recognize there may be another side to this, but in my opinion, Anita Hill saw a man that she had worked with, saw him being elevated to a position of greatness, took stock of her own life and felt that she wasn't getting the due. she wasn't getting the approbation, she wasn't getting the love showered on her. You know, sometimes people are comfortable with the idea that another person can be famous or highly successful, but that other person needs to be otherworldly. Sometimes people don't like you to come from their little town and be successful. Sometimes people don't like you to come from within their own family and be successful. Sometimes people don't like that their former colleague or their next-door neighbor or their classmate or their boss or their employee or their ex-spouse or their own parent or their child goes on to greater heights professionally than they do. And you see these people. They come out of the woodworks. They love to come out of the woodworks and to tell us, oh, that guy. Ted Cruz's college roommate at Harvard was this impish, sissified, self-aggrandizing, narcissistic, disgusting human being who through the course of the presidential primary, repeatedly gave interviews. He would call the media up when they stopped calling him, and he would tell that, I don't think Ted Cruz ever, ever betted a girl when we were in college. Uh, T- Ted Cruz would, uh, 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 Ted Cruz was...
0: Uh, With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?
1: Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time.
5: <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.
3: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Uh, he was. He was. Uh, we, we call him. Uh, he 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 would leave toothpaste on his on his tooth on his toothbrush. And we called it Cruz. We called him Cruz. That was our name for Cruz because it was gross. And Ted, Ted Cruz was creepy. The, the, the girls didn't like him. Uh, really? Well, um, he married a beautiful woman who is extraordinarily successful. And at the moment, this guy started talking. He had a shot at being president. Look, I don't know about you, but if you were to ask enough people in my life, somebody can tell you that. I picked a booger and flicked it on them or threw a baseball at them and hit them or let the air out of their tires or said their mom was ugly when they made me mad. You know, most of the time these people that come out and do these sorts of things, including Anita Hill, it doesn't speak ill of Clarence Thomas. It speaks ill of the Anita Hill. The Michael Berry Show. If you did not get a chance to see the uh, congressional testimony by FBI Director James Comey today, let me just go through. I popped in and out of it, but Sandy Peterson, our research director, took notes throughout and sent me her review as it was going on. on. She noted that uh, Admiral Rogers of the NSA... Also testified, <clears throat> her, tech, her four takeaways were: number one, the Russians were not involved in changing any votes in any U.S. states. This is Comey's testimony. Is what Comey said today: he said the Russians were not involved in changing any votes in any U.S. states. Number two, that there is an investigation into, to use his word, collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. There is an investigation, and I believe he said that's been going on since July. Number three, that nobody in the FBI or the NSA authorized any wiretapping of Donald Trump, but that there could have been other surveillance. Number four, in the NSA alone, there are 20 people who could, quote, unmask, a U.S. person caught up in a surveillance of a foreign person. Admiral Rogers said he does not know or would not comment on who unmasked General Flynn. Trey Trey Gowdy's exchange with Director Comey on whether or not it's a federal crime to disseminate the names of U.S. citizens who've been captured on surveillance of a foreign national went like this. Gowdy, quote, Unauthorized dissemination of – oh, you know, I'm sorry. I have that audio. Let, let me play that audio. Um, let me play you two bits from Trey Gowdy, and then I'll get back to our notes.
1: And again, in February of this year, the New York Times reported on a phone call involving a U.S. citizen, including significant discussions of phone records, intercepted calls, intercepted communications, and reported – The NSA captured calls and then asked the FBI to collect as much information as possible. My time is up, so I will say this for this round. I thought it was against the law to disseminate classified information.
3: Is it? Oh, yes. Sure. It's a serious crime. I'm not going to comment on those particular articles because I don't want to... In any circumstance, compound a criminal act by confirming that it was classified information. But in general, yes, it's a serious crime, and it and it should be for the reasons you said.
1: We'll take it back up next round, Mr. Chairman.
2: Another clip of Trey Gowdy um, pointing to President Obama and six other administration officials during during his comments earlier today.
3: Start by figuring out so who are the suspects? Who touched the information? That you've concluded ended up unlawfully in the newspaper, and start with that universe, and then use investigative tools and techniques to see if you can eliminate people or include people as uh, more serious suspects.
1: Do you know whether Director Clapper knew the name of the U.S. citizen um, that appeared in the New York Times and Washington Post?
3: I can't say in this form because, again, I don't want to confirm that there was classified information in the newspaper. Would he have access to an unmasked name? In, in some circumstances, sure. He was the Director of National Intelligence, but not talking about the particular.
1: Would Director Brennan have access to an unmasked U.S. citizen's name? In some circumstances, yes. Would National Security Advisor Susan Rice have access to an unmasked U.S.
3: citizen's name? I think any, yes, in general, and any other National Security Advisor would, I think, as a matter of their uh, ordinary course of their business.
1: Would former White House advisor Ben Rhodes have access to an unmasked U.S. citizen's name?
3: I don't know the answer to that.
1: Would former Attorney General Loretta Lynch have access to an unmasked U.S. citizen's name? In general, yes, as would any Attorney General. So that would also include acting AG Sally Yates? Same answer. Did you brief President Obama on... Well, I'll just ask you. Did you brief brief President Obama on any calls involving Michael
3: Flynn? I'm not going to get into either that particular case, that matter, or any conversations I had with the president. So I can't answer that.
2: You know, uh, that exchange right there speaks to the beauty that is the United States of America. There are different opinions on whether or not issues of classified information, the deep state, uh, intelligence information, whether these things should be discussed publicly. And each of you, you know, the extent to which they should be discussed publicly, the topics that should be discussed publicly, and you can come to your own conclusion. But I will say this, that exchange right there is... One of the demonstrations, Exhibit A, in what makes this nation great. You know, you can be convinced this is the worst place on earth to live. All I'd ask is maybe hop a flight. I've spent enough time in Asia, Latin America, and Africa to tell you that there are a lot of people in this world who want to come here. And they don't want to come here because they saw a Disney movie and they want to live in it. They want to come here for reasons that are realistic, for the sense of freedom and opportunity and fairness. No, everything's not fair. No, everything's not good. Yes, we've seen some awful perversions of justice. We've seen abuses of power. We've seen terrible things over the last eight years, and it makes me sick to my stomach because we're such a great nation. But when a lowly congressman, and take that with a grain of salt because it's true, one of 450, when a lowly congressman can bring one of the highest officials in the land with access to every secret of of intelligence in the FBI and force him to answer questions like that, he doesn't like it. May make people squirm, man. That's what makes us special. That is fantastic. That's empowering.
0: Captain Sum well, Ting Wong.
2: Well, something must be right.
0: You're listening to Michael Berry.
2: fine tune, Ramon. Well done. Your music being carefully and uh, in a very talented fashion, astutely um, curated by uh, the Tao of Ding, the King of Ding, Ramon Robles today. Uh, the president is speaking in Kentucky, one of our favorite states in the union. We'll dip in on that for a moment, see what he has to say
5: i proposed a budget that calls for one of the largest increases in defense spending history. And we need it. We need it. Got a lot of bad actors out there, folks, right? That's time also. And it's also jobs, because we're going to make this equipment right here in the USA. And we believe in three crucial words, peace through strength. Here's our great Lieutenant Governor, by the way. Please, thank you, darling, thank you. But we will spend our money wisely with just one negotiation on one set of airplanes, I saved the taxpayers of our country over $700 million. And that's just one of many. One of many. We've also kept our promise to appoint a Supreme Court justice who will uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. (laughs) Judge Neil Gorsuch's hearing is now underway in the Senate, and I urge members of both parties to swiftly approve his nomination. He is an outstanding man from an outstanding family with an unbelievably wonderful wife. They should approve. There's another promise that is deeply important to me, and I know it is deeply important to you. We are going to put our coal miners back to work. They have not been treated well, but they're going to be treated well now. Clean coal, right? Clean coal. I have already eliminated a devastating anti-coal regulation. And that is just the beginning. You saw that. Got a lot of thank yous from a lot of great people that work very hard and want to keep working. A lot of people are going to be put back to work. A lot of coal miners are going back to work. As we speak, we are preparing new executive actions to save our coal industry, and to save our wonderful coal miners from continuing to be put out of work. The miners are coming back. Our new EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, a Kentucky native, will turn the EPA environmental, will turn the EPA from a job killer into a job creator. You watch. Since my inauguration, we've already added nearly a half a million new jobs. And that's, believe me, just the beginning. Just the beginning. And I don't know, do you see those consumer confidence levels, Matt? They're through the roof. I don't even know. I think you're doing as well in Kentucky. But I know you don't like Obamacare. I know. (laughs) Great guy. We're working to remove regulations on our auto industry so we can make more cars right here in America, including more cars in Kentucky. We've wiped out many, many unnecessary regulations, and that's just the beginning. It's continuing on a weekly basis. We're getting rid of unnecessary regulations. We're going to be good for business, and we're going to be good for the workers of America. We've also cleared the way for the Keystone and the Dakota Access Pipeline. And as I was signing it, I said, where are they getting the steel? Where? And I said, you know what? If people want to build pipelines in the United States, they should use American steel, and they should build it and create it right here. That pipe is going to be manufactured right here. That was like a last minute. I'm saying, where are they buying this stuff? Like Henry Clay, we want to put our own people to work. We believe in two simple rules, buy American and hire American. So, as you folks all know, Henry Clay was the legendary Kentucky politician who became the eighth Speaker of the House in 1811. You know, they compared my campaign to Jackson, President Jackson, right, of 1828. I said, can you imagine having to go back that far? And they said, this was even more severe. But we did a good job. Did we do a great job together? smart that's a long very
2: time. smart it may be considered distasteful by the media oh boy. And he was but good continuing right? to go out and take your message to the public when you are very good at retail politics is strategically very smart and he's got to be tired there's the travel there's the standing there's the hecklers. Very smart. Very smart. I applaud the move.